This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. And welcome back once again to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88. So today we're going to be deep diving once more into the Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire universe and talking about the third installation in this trilogy, the film that promised so much and let us down a whole lot. (laughs) And delivered so little. So in case you were wondering, uh, this is not spoiler-free, so Genesis, remind us all. If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thank you, Jen. We're gonna jump right into this little plot synopsis, because I know Psyche and I both have feelings to air out about this movie, and like like he said, (laughs) this movie promised so much and gave us so little, so even though it is such a long runtime for film, especially for the early 2000s, really didn't have a lot of substance. Where's the flavor? Where's the flavor in this? Uh, with his jazz hand, I guess. Because, <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. This, this movie, it, it damaged the Spider-Man image more than a little bit. Um, and we're gonna get into all the juicy deets going through this. Yeah, I mean, we should preface this with saying this we, in no way shape or form do we blame like mcguire or you know the cast and crew um the reason this thing really just falls apart is because of studio interference and unrealistic expectations is what i was gonna like caveat all of that as yeah i think everyone did their best but ultimately they weren't given the freedom that they needed to produce the project that this had the capability to be. Um, so where do we begin? It takes place about a year after the events of Spider-Man 2, after um, Otto Octavius's watery death at his own hands, rather the, the power of the sun in the palm of his hand. I mean, heroic sacrifices. Exactly. Um, Peter's planning to propose to MJ, and she's making a go of it as an actress on Broadway, making her musical debut. Um, They are laying back on a spider web casually in Central Park, where, you know, no one's gonna see them chilling on a giant spider web. And boom! Meteorite falls in Central Park, where they can see it. And this creepy, oozy alien thing crawls out of it, and latches on to the closest thing, which happens to be Peter's motorbike. We see Peter and MJ get back on the motorbike and go back to the apartment, and it hitches a ride back with them. <laughs> Already tribed entrance. We're not off to a good start. Uh, at this point, Harry also knows that Peter is Spider-Man, and he's seeking to avenge his father's death. He ends up gassing himself with the goblin juice, and... I don't know why that's how my brain decided to say that. Uh, 
uh, either goblin formula or uh, I think it's Oz formula. But yeah, can we not call it goblin juice, please? Uh, anyway, he gasses himself with the crazy. Um, yeah. His dad's formula. That's worse. <laughs> that was actually worse. Uh, it basically makes him super strong. It's a per- per- performance enhancing drug. He took the superhero steroids and made him crazy. The mad scientist trope all over again. Um, and then he goes to fight Peter and he fights him to a stalemate. Uh, at the same time, we see yet another villain making his appearance. So already within what the first like 30, 45 minutes of this movie, we've got three villain entrances. Actually, I think it was less. Yeah, it happens quick. Yeah. Uh, so we get obviously uh, down the line the symbiote, who, you know, Venom. And then now we've got Harry Osborne as the Green Goblin, and now we're going to Flint Marco, who is being pursued by the police. He pops in to say hey to his wife and his sick daughter, and then poof, has to keep running, and he falls into a, a you know an experimental particle accelerator that just like happens to be chilling out where some dude could fall into it. Uh, yeah. And then he gets fused with the sand that also happens to be in this, you know, experimental particle accelerator. I'm not even sure that's how particle science works. It's not. And he... (laughs) I'll just answer that for you. He gains the ability to turn his body into sand and vice versa. And he solidifies his form and then he's sand and he becomes Sandman. Very creative. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, we pop on over to a festival that's honoring Spider-Man because of him saving Gwen Stacy's life. Uh, There's a little bit of jeering and, you know, crowd excitement, and Peter's like, you should kiss me. The crowd will love it. Meanwhile, MJ's in the crowd watching all of this go down. He's supposedly going to propose to her, but he's just going to straight up kiss another chick when MJ's fully aware that he is Spider-Man. Yeah... Good job, Pete. (laughs) Not the most thought out. Definitely not. Um, MJ's pissed, as she should be. Uh, And at the same time, Flint Marco Sandman is robbing an armored truck and defeats Spider-Man in the process of robbing said truck. Spider-Man didn't eat his Wheaties that morning. He didn't eat a lot of things that morning, except a bunch of sand. Captain George Stacy then informs Peter and Aunt May that Marco was Uncle Ben's killer. And... Right, because we have to bring back dead actors. Mm-hmm. Or, sorry. Dead characters. We have to bring back dead characters for the actors to play one more time. Because with great power comes great responsibility. Anyway, <laughs> so the guy that they thought was Uncle Ben's killer was not Uncle Ben's killer. Plot twist. And it was actually Flint Marco, who Peter has failed to apprehend once. So, uh, anyway, (laughs) as Peter is sleeping just in the middle of his tiny twin bed in the Spidey suit, um, Mm -hmm. the symbiote crawls onto him and becomes part of the suit. And Peter wakes up on top of a building and realizes that his suit looks a little bit different. Um, we get to see the first film version of the black suit Spider-Man, the symbiote Spider-Man. Yeah, and as renditions go, I despise this costume. Like, I'll talk about it on my end, going on. 
we're going to talk about a lot of things and what they did and what they got wrong. Um, anyway, he realizes that symbiotes turned his suit black and he's got, you know, he's stronger, he's more agile, he's also not as in control of his more aggressive emotions. <laughs> yeah, it oh, starts to push on those, which at least that part was accurate. We get emo Peter. Yeah, that part wasn't. Um, I think this was explained in some behind the scenes thing or maybe in the maybe in the, a comic or something where they said, oh, yeah, Peter acted emo and like way over the top because the symbiote was enhancing what he thought was what Peter perceived as cool. And I'm like, I, I, I don't I don't bite. Uh, I know it definitely affects your emotional range and things like that, but enhancing what Peter's perception of cool is by making him just like Chad times three. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, I dub him Chadward. <laughs> anyway. Chad Parker? Chad Parker. Chadward Parker. I feel like that's a clone. <laughs> His evil emo clone. I, I mean, clone saga aside, I mean... <laughs> one of them i guess going on <laughs> sith lord peter parker uh anyway peter locates and battles with sandman in the subway and it's kind of a good showcase of how his powers differ from normal peter parker to symbiote enhanced parker because he's holding his own a little bit better in this fight um, he finds out that Marco can't hold his form together when there's water present, so he ends up just flooding out the section of the sewer that they're fighting in and reduces Marco to mud and then just, like, pushes him down the drain and uh, flushes him. And he thinks, okay, he turned into mud and he's in the river now, it's fine. Yeah, because that's how that works. Yeah. yeah, just push the problem off the table. It won't be a problem anymore. <laughs> Um, let's see. Anyway, so Peter has this massive um, change in personality. He's very much not the sweet, dorky, nerdy Peter Parker that MJ loves. And that kind of swap in personality and all the kind of mean, horrible things he's doing under the influence of the symbiote don't jive with MJ. And it kind of alienates her from him. Um, she ends up having a little kiss kiss with Harry and regrets it, storming off. Um, Harry then goes on to hallucinate about his father and uh, he's kind of starting to suffer from the same amnesia that his father would get when the goblin took over all the way. Uh, he ends up attacking MJ and telling her that she needs to break up with Peter. And then Harry, <laughs> this whole sequence is like a fever. Everything this whole movie happens so quickly. There's so much that happens in this film, but none of it has any substance. You know, so Harry freaks on MJ and tells her you need to break up with Peter. And then Harry then goes to Peter and says, you know, MJ isn't in love with you or she's in love with someone else. And that someone else is me. And <laughs> yeah, that blows up in his face, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. So Peter then kind of goes, all right, well, you know, and he's not in his right mind. The symbiote is very much controlling how he is reacting and 
interacting with people. And he tells Harry that his father never loved him, and uh, and then they end up having this fight in, you know, long story short, Harry ends up taking one of his own bombs to the face and gets a little messed up. So the pretty boy <laughs> is no longer very pretty. I mean, yeah, but let's face it, he got scarred up, like, a little bit, and they could have done so much more. But really, they just, the scarring just adds to the rugged charm rather than uh, detracting. Because it's not like they two-faced him or anything. No, no, it's just like a little light flesh burning. This is about all. Yeah, they could have done more to make him gross. Yeah, they really could have. Again, it's another just missed opportunity here in this movie about missed opportunities. Um, God, I really can't stop myself. Anyway, no, don't. Please don't stop yourself. It's great. <laughs> uh, no, I completely agree with you. This this movie is all over the place, and it's it's um it, it's so hard to give a plot synopsis because the plot has about eighty different directions it tries to go in at any given point. There's no cohesive goals, or I don't know. And then the fight scenes are kind of. Sp- Sparse and over-dramatized at the same time. <sighs> anyway. And they're also dark. Like, I get the movie's overall tone was dark, but the lighting in and of itself was dark. Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't you say? Definitely. It was a little hard to follow the action. Yeah, like the the first, so the first uh, two, right? I'd say the first movie was kind of in a bright yellow, orange, very um, vintage, but also very bright and cinematic and then the second yeah, film it had color the second film had a little bit more of an edge to it but it was still ultimately superhero bright you know even the explosions and the fight scenes taking place during fires and on the river and with lots of reflecting lights it had darkness while also bringing the light where it needed to this movie is just dark and a lot of the fight scenes end up looking a bit jumbled and it suffers for that because you've got you know dark gray concrete black suit spider-man black webs and he's fighting a guy that's dark green (laughs) or he's fighting a guy made out of you know sand which against dark concrete is almost impossible to discern like it's just yeah but yeah, all right. So uh, Harry's been slightly sort of burned, and he's angrier than ever. Peter is going off his own deep end, and have we have we introduced yet? Ven- like Venom's counterpart. Um. So Eddie gets his moment in the sun, I guess. Um. When Peter exposes him for giving doctored photos of Spider-Man that make him look bad, um. Brock gets the can. And this makes him hate Peter. Um, yeah, I mean, I would too. Yeah, yeah, just this guy gets you fired. No more money. Though, you know, also if I was acting unethically, maybe I'd recognize that I should stop acting unethically. But talking about Eddie Brock here, who doesn't have that ability? <laughs> um, so Peter's kind of on a rebound, I guess, because MJ wants kind of nothing to do with him because of he's been acting uh so he takes gwen to the jazz club where mj is working in order to make her jealous yeah because that always works out and then we get this very 
awkward, forced sexual tension tango between Gwen and Peter that just reads as neither of them want to be there doing that. Um, I don't know if it was just the age of the film, but did you think that Tobey Maguire and the actress playing Gwen Stacy had any chemistry? Mm, um, no. That's my short answer. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm sure you have feelings about it to discuss in part two. Uh, yeah. Anyway, they dance and... When they're kind of almost finished with the dance, Gwen looks up and she realizes that the singer at the jazz club is MJ, and she realizes that Peter's only brought her there to make MJ jealous. So, reading solid girl code, Gwen apologizes to MJ and bounces. Um, Peter ends up assaulting the bouncers, and in the process of that fight, he backhands MJ. And she falls to the ground, and he feels horrible. He goes, oh my god, this is not me. I just hit a woman who I love, even though I've been really horrible to her. And I just, you know, I just used another girl to make her jealous when really she hates me for good reasons. Uh, Peter realizes that the root of his problems are the symbiote, and he needs to figure out how to get rid of it. Uh, He retreats to the bell tower of a church. And when the bell goes off, he realizes that the symbiote can't tolerate the frequency of the sound. So he ends up clanging the metal bell back and forth to be able to rip the symbiote off of him. And we get a glorious 10 seconds of Tobey Maguire's pale pasty back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a whole lot more. The man's almost naked at point. Yeah. Oh, yikes. Um, so yeah, he... Ends up ripping the symbiote off of him, and guess who happens to be in convenient distance from the symbiote? Our boy Eddie Brock. Yep. Oh, contrivance yet again. But at least that part was accurate. How was he there? <laughs> he just happened to be in the right spot for the black goop to fall on him. So Brock becomes Venom at this point, and he mm-hmm. uses his new abilities to locate Marco, who survived his flushing go figure and convinces him to work with him in order to kill spider-man and uh, as as we do with the damsel in distress trope mj gets captured yet again but this time by eddie brock he holds her captive at a construction site and is just gonna kill her uh because she's the girl that peter parker happens to love as revenge for you know ruining his life i guess or something. Or something. Yep. Marco ends up kind of playing distraction, and he keeps the cops at a distance. And Harry tells Peter that he's not going to help him. Um, Harry's butler goes on to reveal to Harry that Spider-Man had nothing to do with um, Norman's death. He reveals that, you know, Norman went off the deep end and kind of caused his own death. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brock and Marco are getting the upper hand on Spidey. And Harry has a change of heart after his butler tells him that his friend actually didn't kill his father. And he goes off to help Peter fight Sandman and Venom. Uh, Harry arrives and Peter ends up saving Mary Jane. And Brock attempts to stab Peter with the glider, very reminiscent of Harry's demise. But guess who? 
jumps right in front of that glider to save Peter's life. Just his best friend, because he's got to have more reasons to fight the bad guys, other than the fact that they kidnapped his girlfriend and we're going to kill her. You got to kill his best friend. Yeah. So Harry ends up getting impaled and killed instead. And Peter then remembers that the symbiote's weakness is sound. So he makes a perimeter of metal pipes. Um, listen, I took chorus and I took theater in school and something tells me that. And I took chemistry too. You know what? We're going to bring chemistry into it and and physics, I suppose. But those pipes that he just threw around venom in no way could make a frequency high enough to disturb it that badly. When it took a church bell ringing right next to him to get the symbiote to, like, freak out enough for him to tear it off. Also, like, being embedded... In concrete? Like, as they were, like, that would have significantly dampened any effect like that. But hey, who's counting? We have to beat them now because we're running out of runtime. This movie ran for over two hours. Yeah, and that became a problem. <laughs> um... So, yeah, the symbiote starts wigging out, and Peter ends up just webbing Brock and ripping him out of there. And then he activates one of the pumpkin bombs from Harry's glider and throws it into the perimeter of clanging pipes. But Brock isn't too keen on losing his alien parasite buddy and jumps straight back in there to be incinerated with his symbiote. Because, you know, we saved him, but he doesn't want to be saved. Um, And I think this was kind of Sam Raimi saying, I really didn't want to do this plot, so now I'm just going to kill them both so I don't have to readdress it if we do another movie. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, Peter ends up having one more, or one last very touching moment with his best friend dying. Uh, Marco comes clean, I guess, and explains that Uncle Ben's death was an accident and he's been haunted by it all this time. And then Peter ends up forgiving him and he dusts himself before Thanos dusted the universe, flies off into the sunset, and (sighs) Harry and Peter have a heart-to-heart before Harry dies. Because, you know, we know Peter just can't be happy. No. And then Peter ends up visiting MJ at the jazz club once more. They share a warm embrace and a dance. Roll credits. Thank God. This movie could not (laughs) get over fast enough for me. (laughs) I laugh to not cry. Uh. Uh, Yeah, it's my coping mechanism. I have to laugh or I will cry until I just lie down and fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, I oh I legitimately God. put off watching this movie as long as I possibly could, even more so than X-Men. And that's saying something. Yeah. <sighs> I forget which one of these train wrecks came out first. I think I think X-Men was 2006 and this was 2007. So it was yeah. one train wreck followed by an arguably worse train wreck. Yeah, and the problem is they didn't have quite enough time because if if uh, if Last Stand was released in 2006, then principal photography and other stuff would have already been going on for Spider-Man Three, and so they were there was 
probably just not enough time to already take the bungled mess that was this script and learn from the mistakes that Fox was doing. But also, you know, one movie's from Fox and the other movie's from Sony, so why would the two even think to, I don't know, communicate at all? Yeah, it's not like they're doing movies for the same comic source pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie suffers, I think, from a lack of inspiration because it's pretty well documented, I think, across most internet sources that I was able to find. Sam Raimi did not want to do the Venom subplot. He wanted no, San- yeah. he wanted to do Sandman and Green Goblin, and that was the- those were going to be the villains for this one because we had already kind of established Green Goblin with Harry starting to lose his mind in Spider-Man 2 and discovering the Green Goblin stuff. And then Sandman, fine. You know, Harry can't, I don't think, could carry the movie as the sole Green Goblin because, for one, you know, he's just, he's not Willem Dafoe. Um, yeah, he, like, his character just overall wouldn't have been able to carry as the uh, main antagonist. So, yeah, bring um, in Sandman for some added drama. Maybe they reconcile a little earlier or something and team up against Sandman. That would have been. But instead, right. what we got was, hey, Sam Raimi. I really want you to add Venom to this movie. Sam Raimi said, I don't really want to do Venom. And the studio said, too bad, you're going to do Venom. And so this is what we got. Yeah. (sighs) All right. So should we go to our mid-break before we dive into comic history and what the heck this movie got wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to our mid-break. Enjoy your ads, everybody. All right. Welcome back from... The ads. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we, t- you know, thank everyone who is listening for your support and your reviews of us. We really appreciate everything you guys are doing. We're loving the conversations we're having on the robots Discord. Please reach out to us to talk about whatever. You can hit us up on Twitter or our Gmail or on the Discord. Yeah, that's. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, follow us on yeah, all the social. Yeah, I don't medias. have any. No new reviews. I don't have any new. Yeah. No news. Nothing crazy going on. Um, I no, I was recently I mean, on the patron chat for Two Girls, One Ship. So if you want to hear more of my voice, go check them out. I always suggest checking them out. We love the two girls. Uh, both of us watch the show or listen to the show. Whenever you enjoy that, go give them a listen. Go give me a listen on their patron chat. And on the Mass Effect Lorecast chat. I did that the other night, too. Last week was busy. You did. Yep. I just listened to that one. Last week was busy. <laughs> anyway end of the month usually is with all of the different patron chats mm-hmm. no but it was really fun i enjoyed it and really it was uh we had some little giggles over on the mass effect chat about some marvel stuff it was fun <laughs> yeah all right all right let's get to some lore all right psych who's new and where'd they come from all right. So first and foremost, I have a slight retcon of myself to do. I forgot somebody the first time and in the second one, and he's very, very important. So I need to go over him. J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, just a, amazing just that Spider-Man. One guy. <laughs> yeah, just just that one guy. All right. So introduced in Amazing Spider-Man number one, December nineteen sixty-two by Lee and Ditko. The interesting trivia I have for him is. Actually, like, really interesting. It is believed that Jonah Jameson was based on Dr. Frederick Wortham, 
due to the way Wortham accused comic books as a menace to children. We will definitely discuss Dr. Wortham in depth in a later episode about his role in comic book history overall, but this is not the place or the time to talk about him now. But he is very, very important. Also new, Gwen Stacy, Amazing Spider-Man number 31 in September 1965 by Leon Ditko. Interesting trivia for her is that the original Gwen has not been brought back. Don't know why, but she hasn't. So it's similar, like, it's almost the similar rulings on Uncle Ben. Though I don't know if that particular official ruling stands for Gwen. But they're important Spider-Man character arc deaths, so they almost need to stand. Yeah, exactly. It, it would be like, I mean, if you brought back the original Gwen Stacy, it would in some ways, it would cheapen her original death and all of the character growth that Spidey had gone through after her death. So she still has to remain dead, even though we have several different Gwen Stacys now running around. OG hasn't been brought back. For our villain side, we have Flint Marco, aka Sandman. Funny enough, Flint Marco is not his name. His real name is William Baker. I didn't know that, uh, but whatever. He was introduced in Amazing Spider-Man number 4, June 1963, by, say it all with me now, Lee and Ditko. We're not going to hear so that that's... combo for, we're not going to hear that combo very often, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, actually, this is going to be like the last, the last one for this series of movies will be that combo because now we come up to Eddie Brock, aka Venom. Eddie Brock was introduced in Web of Spider-Man number 18 in September 1986, uh, created by David Michelin, Michelin and Todd McFarlane. Venom wasn't introduced until Amazing Spider-Man's number 299 and 300 in December 1987, January 1988. <laughs> Interesting trivia, in case anyone's been curious about this at all. They are completely 100% a cannibal. They have eaten people multiple times, even though they've sworn up and down to never do it. They've definitely done it. Also, I thought that this one was really interesting, actually. The original Venom was intended to be a woman with a very complicated backstory that I, I don't really have to get into right now. But uh, that's what David wanted to do, was introduce Venom as a woman. And that's why in several of the Web of Spider-Man comics, that mysterious figure that hurts Spider-Man, they're like, they're feminine hands. That's why. But this idea was ultimately rejected by Jim uh, Scalacroup for... And this is, I don't know if it's an exact quote, but it's a very bad idea here, but it's for not being threatening enough as a supervillain as a woman. So a scary lady with talon claws that eats men and kills Spider-Man is not terrifying enough for a villain. Apparently. Because, oops. Yeah. So that's how it ended up becoming Eddie Brock. I can't, like, that is such a missed opportunity I mean, obviously women can hold their own as supervillains. They they had been doing it for years up to that point. But apparently, according to this guy, they just aren't. <sighs> Ladies, you can be the supervillain of your dreams if you want to be. Just kill enough. <laughs> we should probably not be proponents of murder here, but... <laughs> Don't commit murders, but be scary. Do your best. <laughs> All right, and then I guess lastly here is Harry as the Green Goblin. That was in Amazing Spider-Man number 136, June 1989. 
1974, and that was by uh, Jerry Conway and uh, Romita Sr. And unfortunately, Harry's life just never pulls itself together after that. He has a very troubled life, and then he has a very unfortunate death. Yeah, it's it's not great being Harry in the comic books at all. I would probably say the same thing here for the movies, but meh. He had more characterization across the films, I think we even said in Spider-Man 2, than he did in the comics. Yes, yes he did. I mean, hell, he had more characterization in the Amazing Spider-Man, not Amazing Spider-Man, the, the Spider-Man Fox Kids cartoon than he has in this movie. With the ramen noodle hair. Exactly, yeah. And for our very last one here is the symbiote itself. Its origin story lies in Amazing Spider-Man number 252 in January 1984 by Randy Schuler, Jim Shooter, and Mike Zeke. Trivia here is really annoying to me, and it's why I want to share it with you, because I'm annoyed by it. This was retconned. The symbiote first bonded with Deadpool before Spider-Man during the Secret Wars on Battleworld. Deadpool had it on for, like, a whole three minutes, re- realized what it was, took it off, and put it back just before Spider-Man were de- was to find it. This was all a part of Deadpool hopping around in in stuff, do like being a part of major events that he hadn't been a part of. I despise this retcon. I mean, retcons overall aren't particularly great, but this one in particular just irks me. Because now, it's not the symbiote's fault that it goes crazy. It was exposed to Deadpool's BS insanity. And I feel like that, it, like, it absolves the symbiote of everything wrong it's ever done. And that's not right no it's that not bothers just, me ethically don't just blame deadpool it's like no this was a thing long before deadpool jumped universe yeah yeah precisely no that's a little ridiculous i get wanting to credit a popular character and do more with a popular character to retcon a whole storyline like that nah yeah it's you know that's so it's one of the problems with uh comic books overall is the inability to let these characters grow up to let them learn from their mistakes, go on new adventures, grow old, and pass off the reins. You know, Marvel, DC, they they can't afford to do it. They can't let themselves do it because if they let Spider-Man grow old and pass it on, then what are they what like what are they going to do? I don't know. Have a new generation to have a new character grow up. I mean, you, you take risks in this. You have to. You and instead you get regurgitated storylines and lessons to be learned over and over and over. And it's been 60 years, like 1962 people. This is 2022. I actually, I love Spider-Man. I kind of, I talked about this a little bit with a former coworker and we were discussing how, you know, uh, how parents maybe need to think about what they're exposing children to with, like violent movies and stuff like that. Like we were even saying, you know, her four-year-old probably shouldn't watch a film like The Avengers and watch the aliens getting their heads blown off and stuff like that, you know? Um, Yeah, probably. But she was saying that her son absolutely loves Spidey and Friends. And if I'm not mistaken, it heavily stars Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales. So clearly it's possible for these media superpowers, quite literally, to move on with younger generations to new characters. Because she's like, my son absolutely loves Miles Morales. He's, you know, 
he's yeah. his favorite Spider-Man. And, you know, he's been around for a little bit longer in the comics, but the fact is, I mean, I loved Into the Spider-Verse, and maybe we'll talk about it down the line, but, you know, that character... Maybe it's a separate episode. Yeah, but that character, it has the he has the potential to mean a lot to a younger generation, and for studios to, or for, you know, these media companies to retcon great stories because they're too scared to let go of old characters. It's just a bit ridiculous to me. Like, yeah, so in a media like a new television show, that's that's different where you can, because uh, it also stars Peter Parker's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just aged appropriately with uh, a now different Gwen Stacy who is uh, Spider-Gwen. Spider and Miles Morales. I mean, they did the same thing with uh, several different uh, recent Spider-Man cartoons. Um, <clears throat> but I, you know, for the comic books, like the one of the best things is um, like the what ifs always allow. Like the what ifs allow you to see what could happen. It's what if Spider-Man let go of everything and grew old, right? Um, and that's where we get one of Marvel's very popular lines of comic books: Spider Girl who is his daughter in a different alternate timeline that he's allowed to grow old in with Mary Jane. They have a daughter. They have a young, uh, another young child at some point. Um, Mayday Parker, that's her nickname. She goes out, becomes Spider Girl. They're really fun, really great comics. I love them. Um, I've been trying to get my hands on a few more, but um, funds have been a little lacking. But anyway, um, um, but that's not the mainstream. That's not 616, Spidey, because we can't do that. Instead, we get storylines like One More Day or <sighs> The Death of Spider-Man again. Like, that's what we go through with the main line. And it's really in the extra stuff. It's in the non-mainline stuff that I feel like Marvel really shines best instead of regurgitated storylines with old characters who aren't old somehow and don't get me wrong x-men does the exact same thing Uh, i mean hell they had to de-age magneto at some point during the the 70s or 80s there was a whole x-baby thing for a little while um and and, you know and magneto is a great example of that right we're coming up on a hundred years since the events of world war ii which is like one of the defining moments for magneto uh or eric lynch's character magneto and so how do you how do you take something that is that old of a an event and keep it relevant to a new character or and you really can't and that's why there's always this well, like Magneto's going to die at some point and he gets brought back uh his clone gets made up and memories get implanted in him so forth and so forth and so forth and how many that's how you keep it how many bodies has the red skull had over the over comic history I oh boy the mm, there uh, <laughs> that's a good one right <laughs> yeah so I I mean I feel like I've got on this soapbox about about this so I I want to wrap this up tightly tightlier Marvel and DC I know this isn't a DC lore cast but this kind of goes out to them too take risks allow your characters to grow up because having now grown up with these characters during my timeline of you know, retcons and changes. I'm tired of them. 
I want new material from new characters, from a new generation of characters. Characters that I feel like would embody our generation better than trying to make Peter Parker a millennial. Because he's not. As much as I love Peter Parker and Spider-Man, they're not millennials. Anyway, that's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> I, I think it is pretty clear that we both had strong negative emotions about this. Oh, it yeah. could have been so much. And I'm, I'm not going to say it's absolute worst out there. Looking at you, Nicolas Cage. Uh, we can also toss on you know some other <clears throat> fantastic four. Cough, cough, cough. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at you, green super suit. CGI. Uh, again, this is not a DC lore cast at all, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> that one's got There's a number there. from the. I'm looking at. Yeah, there's a number. I'm looking at you, Starship Troopers, rubber eared Captain America man. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so what what did this movie get right for you? Um, you know, very little. Um, because as much as we, as much as I like, like as much as I liked Topher Grace. He was not a very good Brock. The symbiote black suit was one of the worst renditions I've ever it seen. It looked very itchy. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And it lacked uh, contrast. It lacked depth. It was just, we'll just dip the whole suit in black and call it a day. Um, the unnecessary like additions to have to keep bringing back the actors to play Norman Osborn and... Uh, uncle ben so that we can have these dream sequences and these fever dreams like that was all unnecessary crap um the absolutely atrocious run yes and also you know the i wanted a more definitive ending to uh, peter parker and mary jane's relationship um like them sharing a dance that's uh, that's ambiguous that's like yeah, maybe I forgive you, but I'm not going to move back in, and this relationship is still done, but I understand that you weren't in your right mind. Like, that is a plausible future for them. That is not a definitive, we're going to get back together, we're going to try to make this work, yada, yada, yada. In the end, um, when Stacy, and she's kind of a well-known Spider-Man alternate love interest to MJ, but despite, you know, there was some awkward forced romance stuff, and then the whole jealousy yeah. thing, and it's like either commit to the other romantic subplot and to hell with him, or just don't pursue it. There was almost no reason for Gwen Stacy or even Captain Stacy to be in this movie other than Captain Stacy told Peter, oh, hey, by the way, Flint's the guy that killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. And then Gwen had to be there solely to make MJ jealous. Because I guess they realized that the other female lead they could bring in with that capability and fitting in comically would be. I mean, there were there's other ladies in in Peter's life. There's a uh, Betty uh, Betty Brant. Um, there's Liz Allen. Um, so there could have been uh, they could have taken the love relationship dynamic in a different direction than to rely on Gwen Stacy. Like, and we'll get into more about Gwen. I think in the next other Spider-Man films we need to go over at some point. Um, but yeah, this was a uh, this was not a, her best first outing. 
overall. Yeah, I, I wanted so much, especially yeah. now as, you know, being a little bit older than I was, obviously, because it came out in 2007. I was a whopping nine years. Um, <laughs> I didn't really have any opinion about Spider-Man at, at that point. But now, looking back on it, and especially through the lens of all of the film that we have gotten over the last 20 years of serious comic book media, <laughs> I could see that there was so much potential with this movie, and what breaks me about it is that these characters are so important Spider-Man, and this was the outing of Yikes. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, we, we ended on such a high note with Spider-Man 2, and then Spider-Man 3 comes around, and it, uh, Raimi had been planning a 4, it had uh, plans for a vulture and an introduction of Black Cat, oh, right, another... Uh, lady in Parker's life, Alicia Hardy, mm-hmm. could totally have done that and set up uh, Spider-Man 4 if necessary. But we did not get there because of how critically this movie failed. Uh, it was, I'm not going to say universally panned, but it was it was not well received. And it sent Sony back to the drawing board and also allowed for Marvel to kind of start shaping up what they wanted to do. Because, you know, again, this was 2006. They were starting to plan out what would become um, their phase one. And knowing and seeing how Spider-Man was doing was a, is a good test, was a good test indicator for what direction Marvel wanted to go in their movies. I gotta say, if I'm that Marvel exec, if I'm Kevin Feige and I'm watching Spider-Man through roll out and how people are receiving it, I am wrapping my hands going in Iron Man. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I'm going, oh, but, crap, man. This could go one of two ways. It's like, all right, these X-Men movies over here, they did all right until movie number three. And these Spider-Man movies, okay, one and two did really, really well. Let's pray for three to do well. And then Iron Man comes out pretty soon. And we'll be all right. Riding that high. You know, they're not quite affiliated, but people watching that are going to watch Iron Man. And yeah. I'm, I'm Kevin Feige sitting there with my brown pants on. <laughs> was was he in charge at the time? I think so. I think his name was on the credits for Spider-Man 2, oh. actually. Yeah. Okay. Don't right. quote me on that. Maybe we'll we'll probably retcon myself in uh episode next week, but <laughs> pretty sure. Well, all right. But... Speaking uh speaking of next week, uh we will be ending our first season here with uh our another character analysis. Because of the terrible reception that Venom got here, we're going to deep dive into Venom with our friend and fellow podcast host, Teacup, from the Dragon Age Lorecast, Assassin's Creed Lorecast, and Holocron Histories. We're really looking forward to that. It's going to be super exciting. Can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Have another discussion about a character, because I had a lot of fun doing the Rogue. Right, and we'll have, like, he'll be properly joining us this time. Uh, Genesis will... We will invite her again, of course, and she'll be able to join us for something else another time. But uh, so this one will be much more of an of an interview and open discussion about about Venom and what we like and what we don't like and all the great lore behind him. But that's what we have to look forward to next week. And um, do you have anything you want to shout out, Chenko? I no, I don't think so. We don't really have. Uh, we didn't have any new reviews or anything like that. Word of mouth has really been our best friend, I think. A lot of my friends, at least, have been telling their friends. So if you like what you're here, enjoy what we do, you want to hear more, and you want to keep supporting us, 
best thing for anything is really just tell your friends, get them listening to the show, and chat with us on the Discord. We are really looking forward to talking and hearing you say what you have to say or what you have to say about the show. Because, you know, the other night I went on with the, the two girls and just hearing how Jen was explaining the show and how she's been enjoying it really, really meant something. That's great. That's good to hear. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. Uh, so I think this is where we say sayonara and we'll catch you next week. Next week, everyone. Bye. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. N7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And to quote Stan the Man, enough said. Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful. Here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.